Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive function. This podcast is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. So join us as we explore executive function and the science of learning. And now, here's your host, the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. We do a lot of things on this podcast, but the most important thing we try to do is take a moment to think about our thinking and think about the ways we can change our ways. Those who listen to us often know that this is podcast uh, that tries to fulfill three goals, many more, but three primary goals. One is to explain what executive function is, what's the role of prefrontal cortex in self-actualization by translating the research findings from many, many fields, including neuroscience, psychology, uh, anthropology, and many more into meaningful uh, bits that apply to everyone's life. Second goal we have is to connect uh, the plight of the current self with this aspirational future self. And more and more, we bridge the gap between the two. There's a chance that we can actually take care of the needs of the future self and become a better version of ourselves faster uh, and with great strategies. And last but not the least is to help people create a some sort of playbook for not just personal success, but success as a community member, as an activist, as a change maker. And that so much depends on mastery of executive function because that centers around self-control. So as we talk about this, one of the things uh, that has been uh, on everybody's mind is how do we talk about becoming the best and the greatest citizens of of this um, American life here and those who are listening to all other parts. We, We get listeners from 90 countries, so I'm very, very excited about that. So the most important thing, though, is um, how do we understand experiences of, of those who are not, uh, do not belong to the, the majority? And, uh, particularly after George Floyd's uh, death, we have had, uh, incredible op- a chance to open some dialogue regarding that. So with that in mind, I was just going to make a reference to, uh, a, a journalist just published a book about, um, you know, operations of FBI. And it was so interesting. There was something that she mentions in her book, uh, which is a story that goes, um, many, many, uh, in 2001, LA Times reporter, Eric, uh, Litch, Blue, I think, wrote the story titled FBI Settles Black Agents Discrimination Lawsuits. And it was very interesting because in that, uh, one of the things she writes that a federal judge on Monday approved a sweeping settlement in a 10-year-old lawsuit between the FBI and some 500 current and former agents who contended uh, contend they were systematically discriminated against because they're Black. And the experience of those black agents um, was treated, every individual when they mentioned it was treated as a minority, it's it's an exceptional uh, experience of one individual. But when collectively everybody gathered together, there was a systematic, um, um, systematic behaviors. And they included not, you know, hiring practices, uh, promotional practices, um, their ability to join elite teams like SWAT teams. The reason I'm mentioning all that is When we look around and we think opportunities, this is a land of the free and opportunities are created equal. 
The question really is, is it so? And if it is, then um, should we be complacent? And if it is not, should we take action? And what are the fears and barriers? And with that in mind, that's why it's my great pleasure to invite uh, this incredible researcher, Dr. Darren uh, Graves. He's an associate professor of education at Simmons University, where he research, uh, his research lies at the intersection of critical race theory, racial identity development, and teacher education. His work has been published in numerous uh, academic journals, including developmental psychology, applied developmental, developmental science, and youth and society. He also co-teaches critical race theory in education at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he currently serves, which is very interesting, I want to talk to him about, is um, co-chair of AERA Hip Hop Theories, Praxis and Pedagogies Special Interest Group. One of the reasons he is joining us is because of his incredible book, uh, which he co-authored with uh, Dr. Scott's Cider, which is called Schooling for Critical Consciousness, Engaging Black and Latinx Youth in Analyzing, Navigating, Challenging Racial Injustice. Welcome. Sorry, it took a while to set up the stage, but welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Uh, uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Atata, for inviting me, and I'm really happy to be here and lo looking forward to this conversation. So I ask a lot of my guests about executive function and their own understanding of their own executive function. And since your work over, um, is uh, uh, taking a deep dive in critical consciousness, um, well, how would you describe your own critical consciousness and your awareness of your own abilities as an individual learner, but also as a person who is trying to make an impact? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate it. I think my, so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of critical consciousness. Um, you know, uh, as being, you know, drawing from Paulo Freire's uh, definition and conception of critical consciousness as, you know, the ability to recognize, you know, social and political forces, and then to be able to take action against them, right? And especially to the extent that they might be, um, you know, holding others down or oppressing others. And so my own critical consciousness is really rooted um in my in my family and and in the and in the tradition I th in the African American tradition of education right and so I come from a legacy here in the U S where you know education was denied to my ancestors um, you know either outright um, or through you know you know not providing anywhere near the means that 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 we would need um, to 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 have you know high quality schooling. Um, and that was very much based on um, faulty notions of, of black folks as not being intellectual or not being capable of, you know, being, uh, you know, highly intelligent. And so in, the, in that context, you know, we come from a legacy, we being black folks, you know, in America come from this legacy of, you know, seeking education, seeking schooling in the face of all of those challenges. Um, as a means to both, you know, affirm our own humanity, affirm our own, you know, become author, you know, authentic authors of our own futures, and also to, you know, to help transform the larger society to remove um, those barriers and obstacles uh, from, you know, us as Black folks and, and everyone. Um, and so I come from a long legacy of educators um, in my family um, and otherwise who, um, have instilled in me the importance of of learning more, achieving highly, um, 
and that my success comes not when I succeed, um, but when those who come behind me um, succeed. So I'm standing on strong shoulders and I need to be strong shoulders for the people coming uh, behind me. I love that. And uh, you exemplified uh, that through your work and and the teachings you do and in different communities that you belong, uh, including uh, the Muslim community lecture. I had an opportunity to listen to you about that as well. So uh, just to um, get um, a little bit more in-depth uh, clarification about the uh, you know Brazilian educator that you mentioned Paulo Freire's uh, definition of critical consciousness which you summarize in many places including with your colleagues that inequality is sustained when the people most affected by it are unable to decode their social conditions i just think that's such a powerful way to think that you're basically trying to survive but to take a look at your condition in the context of others requires some type of awakening uh, or some type of uh, uh, experiences that takes you outside your realm of being. So can you tell us a little bit about this decoding process? Uh, what social conditions, because the conditions are designed to make you not aware of them, right? Exactly. So how, how would you explain or elaborate on that? I really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the systems that are at play, whether they're you know, systems that are, you know, organizing people's opportunities on the basis of race or gender or sexuality or religion or, you know, ability, disability, like all of these, these systems are super powerful and operate so, and have been operating since before we got here and probably since, you know, maybe after we're gone, but because they're so pervasive um, and they're, op and like you said, they're, they're sort of organized in ways for you not to really think about them, even the people who are most affected by them, right, might not even understand how that they're operating or how they're operating, right? And so I think we have, you know, a narrative in the, in the United States that very much um, centers people's efforts and decisions, right, as the things that will help and, and effort, right, and that, that, will, that will be rewarded or not, right, in terms of, you know, and it really uh, presumes that there is a, a level playing ground, right? So if you presume a level playing ground where everybody has the same opportunities, right, then people, then you're, you're, you should be judged on, I mean, your progress and your success is really a function of, you know, how hard you try, did you make the right decision, so on and so forth, right? And so with that, uh, you know, an over-belief in that meritocratic system then leads even the folks who are victimized by some of these systems of oppression um, to see their own lack of relative success um, or some of the, the symptoms of those um, systems as a function of their own, you know, poor decision making or, you know, cultural features that, you know, that, you know, might be disconnected from, you know, the institutions uh, like school and otherwise where, where people attain success. Um, and so it really, you know, can, can lead to situations where, you know, you are blaming um, yourself or your own community for issues that are really about structures that have been placed on top of your community that have really constrained, um, you know, the options for, for agency you know, moving forward. And so there does need actually to, you know, and for folks who have privilege, that, that that's, there's very much 
you know, the, those systems of, of privilege are very invisible. So for, that's a whole different story for the folks who have privilege. But for the folks who don't, there still often needs to be an intentional project to help, um, the, you know, these communities see what the systems are that are, that are constraining their possibilities and how they operate um, so that they can have that, as you described, an awakening to then figure out what to do next. You know, two thoughts come to my mind. One is the story of Benjamin Franklin, who was, uh, it was, uh, I heard, uh, I had never heard it phrased that way, but he perpetuated the myth of rags to riches, where he, as the printing press owner, actually uh, announced um, uh, an initiative if people brought their rags. He could give trade something, and then eventually he became very rich, and and so he always put this narrative out that if you work hard, if you uh, you know tried your best, you every citizen of this country has that potential and opportunity. But it's a lie; it's a myth a little bit because those opportunities are not created equal. And and second thought was uh, Beverly Tatum, uh, Daniel Tatum talks about this invisible uh, um, escalator, right, moving. And and I uh, moving escalator on which the pr- people with privilege are um, automatically propelled towards progress, uh, and the ones who are uh, were walking at the same pace but can never reach. Uh, can you tell? Um, so I'm going to tie this back into the topic that we can talk about. Is you're a developmental psychologist? Before we begin with this work of critical consciousness in youth. Can you take a moment to talk about the psychological makeup uh, and struggles of the marginalized children and youth? And what are they battling with that might get overlooked by traditional educational approach? Yeah, no, this is a great question. So as a developmental psychologist, I'm super interested in, in identity development um, writ large, and it's particularly racial identity development, um, and so, which is really like the impetus for, for the project of the book. And so, but let me just, well, I'll just say it like this, you know, you know, when it comes to issues of race and other kinds of identities, right, socially constructed identities, we are all bombarded with, you know, so many messages about who people are, who we are, you know, on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, other other um, identities that have really profound impacts on how particularly young folks see themselves, right? And so, if we're trying to understand how, you know, young students of color, for example, you know, come to see themselves writ large, come to see themselves as students, come to see themselves as, you know, uh, folks who can, you know, thrive in schools, that's coming in the face of, the, you know, a, 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 a tidal wave of messaging and a tidal wave of ideas that, that have existed for now, like, you know, centuries that have called into question the ability of, you know, certain groups of color to be, you know, to, to, to as intellectual beings at all, right? Um, lots of, lots of messaging about, um, you know, people of color from a deficit lens that really, that, that really frame them as deviant, dangerous, mm-hmm. um, you know, bodies that need to be policed, um, minds that are, are, are not fully formed and need, you know, lots of help to overcome that, um, you know, so on and so forth. And so what that really means is, so what I'm always concerned about is, you know, and these messages are coming from, you know, lots of different places. It, it, it comes from media. It comes from institutions. It comes from, it, it's in the air, right? It's, 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 it's virtually impossible to not 
be impacted uh, by the by the by these ideas. And so I'm very concerned about in, in the in the face of these tidal wave of of ideas about particularly young folks of color and their communities through a deficit lens, what does that mean for how they come to see themselves, right? And, it, and it's not uncommon, sadly, um, for any of us, whether we're in that, you know, minoritized group or not, to then to internalize, you know, the messaging and the, the, the problematic ideas that underpin different, pe- different people's races and identities, right? Which for, for students of those identities means that you could be seeing yourself through that, a deficit lens, right? And there's lots of research um, that shows that this definitely happens. I mean, the most famous example of this came in the uh, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education case, where uh, the, the 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 Clark's uh, Mamie and Doc, uh, I can't remember the the the, the man's name, uh, but the the, the Clark uh, uh, they were both doctors, psychologists, and they did this famous doll test where they would put white dolls and black dolls in front of black students and they'd say, which doll is nice? Which doll is bad? Which doll is mean? Which doll is smart? Which doll is right? And what you would, and what you found is that, you know, young black children were looking at the black dolls and, and, you know, evaluating them as dumb, worse, bad, mean, you know, especially relative to the white dolls, which has real implications for, you know, how they're seeing themselves that same doll experiment has been replicated in the, in the 21st century. And we're still seeing that those same outcomes. Right. And so that just speaks to, you know, you know, the ways in which there are huge barriers that are being put in front of, you know, particularly communities of color and young folks of color around, you know, developing a healthy sense of identity, a healthy sense of self, a healthy sense of who I am, who I can become. And so that's, those are the kinds of issues. And those are reinforced, again, those are reinforced by teachers. Those are reinforced by, you know, lots of institutions, media, so on and so forth. And so I'm really interested in thinking about ways we can be intentionally helping um, young uh, folks of color in particular develop, uh, you know, a positive sense of identity because those positive, positive identities is associated with all the kinds of outcomes we're interested in our young folks, whether it's academic engagement, achievement, uh, civic engagement, resilience, so on and so forth. That's excellent. Uh, Thank you for clarifying that because I think, you know, we literally, I mean, from educators' perspective, people think that students come and all students are made equal because they're sitting in front of me. But what psychological and historical um, cultural background they bring are so diverse, and one may not be privy to that. It's it's interesting. Um, I'm soon going to publish another um, fantastic guest, uh, Roy Richard uh, Grinker, and he's an anthropologist, a psychologist, psychoanalyst and psychologist, uh, psychiatrist. And he talks about this, um, his work is about disability and stigma associated with social construct, you know. And one of the interesting stories that in his books he write, writes about that in, in 2002, Japan decided to change the Japanese word for schizophrenia permanently, uh, or, uh, remove it from the uh, like official vocabulary because it connotated um, permanently ruptured mind and replace the word uh, with integration disorder. And now 10 years later, 20 years later, there is a deep 
psychological impact on the way people see with those diagnoses and their acceptance has changed. And so similarly, I think what you're saying, and I didn't kind of uh, set the stage that well with the FBI story, what I was saying is um, when they investigated uh, uh, the stories of those 500 who had filed a lawsuit, uh, uh, one example was one of the agents who served in Chicago and Omaha said that the white agents would post photographs of apes over his family pictures at his desk and subjected him to other racist treatment, which was very subtle, very, um, but it was a culture. That means, one, it was permitted, and second, it was not objected or pe penalized. And so as you talk about critical consciousness, I think what I'm um, hoping uh, to hear further about is changing the ones who witnesses and those who experience it, right? So, so tell us about... Um, First question comes to mind, are educators um, able to contribute to ch helping change identities? Because what part of their education really prepares them? Because identity, we think about from subject of study, comes from anthropology, sociology, cognition, you know, so much more complex. So how do you see education being the place where this happens? Well, yeah, this is a great question. So um, schools... You know, are can, are are can definitely um, impact and does impact people's sense of identity. And so, part of what so there, there's a few ways to think about it. You know, there there are some folks who say, and I think I understand this, right? Well, is it my job, or or you know, as an educator or a parent, saying, is it educators' jobs to really be helping students, you know, figure out and navigate identity? And I have I have two responses to that. One is that whether we like it or not, it it, it just is, right? It, it, it's just happening, right? Yes. It's almost it's almost like <laughs> yes. you know um, some of the debates around sex education in schools, right? There's some people who will say, well, I don't want my children learning about sex in schools, and I can understand that, right? And you know, there's a lot, especially you know those those educators who work with you know like grades you know six through you know and above will say, look, whether you like it or not, like young folks are learning about sex in schools. They're just learning it from each other. Right. And so the question becomes yes. like, what, you know, what do we, <laughs> Who's as adults, the source? right. Exactly. What do we as adults, should we as adults be doing to help, you know, intervene in that process? And I say, it's a similar thing with schools, like whether, you know, based on, you know, who's visible in the curriculum, who's visible as staff and experts around them, who, you know, what are the kinds of relationships between students and teachers? What are the kind of relationships between you know, uh, teachers and the communities. There's a million different ways that whether you're thinking about it explicitly in that way or not, are sending powerful messages to young folks about their identity. And so that's my way of saying, whether you like it or not, it's happening. The other way I think about it too is, you know, it, it's it, it's it's a you know a kind of a poor feature of the way that you know K to 12 schools are going in the United States. But when you do early childhood education, by the way, when you're doing that early early childhood education. That identity development is the job. That's the job. That, that's yes. what that's what teaching is. Like you're, you're, I love that. Young, yes. young folks are not getting, <laughs> you know, graded on whether they can, you know, apply the Pythagorean theorem or not. Or right, they're they're really getting graded on, you know, their their social and emotional, you know, capabilities. Right. And what happens, unfortunately, um, that the further we move away from early childhood education, the job of you know, what teaching means or what being a good teacher means moves further away from explicitly thinking about identity development and way more focused on like delivering curriculum, you know, being an expert in the content area. And I think that's a massive, 
problem because, of course, especially from a developmental psychology perspective, the entirety of that, the entirety of life is a process of developing identity, of course. But if we are sending folks, young folks, we were making young folks go to school every day for, you know, seven hours a day, right? <laughs> that, and we've already made the case that school is, is impacting people's identities, right? And so um, we, what, what happened at times, whether it's in, you know, you know, you know, pre-adolescence, especially adolescence. I mean, these are times of massive, you know, um, you know, opportunities for folks to be thinking about and developing identity. And yet the teachers in the, in the, in those grades are really moving away from that. Right. And thinking more about delivering instruction. And what I'm saying, by the way, is especially when you get into adolescence, you know, the, you know, here's what a lot of schooling sounds like. Right. And when you're in a classroom, hey, guys, come on. Get it together, you guys. Meet, no, stop talking. You know, guys, do that. You know, a lot of redirection, right? But what's happening is we we're making young folks go to school, rightfully so, and they're trying to figure out who they are in the process, right? They're trying to figure out who they yes. are, and we're and we're sitting there going, no, no, stop that, stop that. We need to like do the the math problem now or read this, right? And so I'm really urging um, educators in a variety of ways to, to to really understand that again, whether they like it or not. Identity development's happening, um, and they need to be figuring out, you know, h- how, if at all, they need to be playing a role in that. And that doesn't necessarily always mean, you know, pulling some separate social and emotional identity, you know, curriculum out f- from the side. Like, you know, even if you're a math teacher, right, you, whether you know it or not, whether it's through your curriculum, whether it's how you're interacting with folks, you know, people are learning about their identities. A, a, a really great example is a very, a really famous um, uh, sort of uh, social uh, psychology, I think it's more of a, well, it's a psychology experiment where they've asked like thousands of U.S. children to draw, to basically draw a scientist, right? And when they draw a scientist, right, it's all, you know, like 95% of these pictures are of white men, right? And so what does that mean? That means that if you're not a white male, or if you're not a white man or a young man, right, becoming a scientist, you know, unless we're doing some intentional work around this, becoming a scientist means overcoming your race and your identity, right, and your gender identity to then, you know, buck the odds to become, right, a, a scientist, as opposed to, of course, there's scientists come in all shapes and sizes and identities. Um, but again, if we're not being intentional, about helping young folks understand that, then it shouldn't be a surprise when we're having issues, you know, engaging folks who basically aren't white men, right, to be, you know, to engage in the, in the field, in the study of science or, or whatever the, you know, the topic is. And so um, some of, you know, this work is, yes, uh, this work, it, it takes on many different forms, right, around helping young folks develop a sense that, yes, I am an intellectual being. I am a sci- I come from a community of scientists or mathematicians or so on and so forth, right? Um, the way my teacher interacts with me and my community helps me understand that I am capable of all these things, right? So this, the, we, educators are doing this, whether they're doing it wittingly or not. And I'm urging educators that they need to be way more intentional about thinking about the ways that they are sending messages to help students develop a positive sense of identity. I love that. I was recently in a 
in an author's um, oh, a release of uh, you know Janice Kaplan's new book called Genius of a Woman. Uh, she and, and in that she tracks stories of women in variety of ways, and she she refers to another experiment that was done to um, talk about. Uh, um, different fields and who is the pinnacle a representative of that field and not a single woman. The children could not name a single woman. So the belief was if I can't, if I don't see them, if I don't know them, they must not be good at it. It was never viewed as there was no opportunity, right? And so anyway, in her book, she talks about all these amazing scientists who actually were either married to or they're, you know, in, including Albert Einstein's wife, who also was quite a bit of a uh, talented mathematician. So let's talk about now the critic applying your your uh, you know your theory to practice effort that you did with with Scott. So in this book that you you know you um, and in your research project actually you talk about how schools can help Black and Latinx youth resist the negative effects of racial injustices and challenge its root causes. So in order to do that, what was the uh, the status? What were children doing? Were they aware such oppressive practices existed? Did they even know that there was an opportunity or it was only facilitated by the educational experience? That's a great question. Um, so our our research project took predominantly took took place in high schools, right? So we were really dealing in this case with adolescents. We um, were intentional about not presuming that the students were coming, and this is a very, by the way, very Frarian, Paulo Freire kind of um, way of thinking about it, but we were, we were presuming that the students were coming in with some knowledge already, with some understanding already, right? That they weren't coming in as, so as you know, empty, as blank slates that the schools were then there to like fill out for them, right? So we didn't want to presume that that, that, that they were coming in without any, you know, knowledge of this. And, and by the way, given that they were, you know, young, Black and Latinx students in, in a lot of, you know, you know pr prominent kind of East Coast um, cities, we, we were more likely to presume that they did have some sense of what was going on. And so we tried to um, organize... And there were five schools that you studied, right? You, five you schools, five high, Okay, Yeah, five explain, high yeah. schools, um, schools that had missions that were... Um, intentionally around um, developing either some measure of critical consciousness or and or civic development. And we were trying to figure out what kind of um, um, uh, different um, different kinds of, of approaches that schools took to help young folks both understand how, you know, the, the, these how these social forces are at play and then what they could do about it. OK, and so, and we, and we actually follow, and, and the great part about this study is that we actually followed the students from the beginning of their um, first year in high school to the, to, to their very end. So it was a longitudinal study. So we got to see how this oh, looked wow. and looked, you know, over time, which we were also super interested in. So we, and, and then we, and then the kind of data we, we collected both quantitative and qualitative data. We, we, we used surveys to measure different components of critical consciousness to see you know, how, if at all, critical consciousness was developing over time, right? And then we also collected qualitative Can data. Can you give us examples yeah. of uh, what kind of questions judge the critical consciousness in students? Oh, yeah, they were just different. I mean, so for me to explain that, I have to dive a little deeper into the ways that we have, we're conceptualizing critical consciousness, which has basically three components. Would you? Yeah, basically three yes, components. Yes, please. I meant to ask you that yeah. first, yes. So I, if you remember, please. my definition was uh, that I was using was the ability to recognize these forces and to take action against them. And so 
it, we, we, we see critical consciousness as having three components. One is social analysis, right? That's the recognition part, understanding like, you know, that these systems exist and how they exist. We also see this, uh, another component is social action, right? Which refers to a variety of types of actions you can take in order to like, you know, push back against these systems. And then we have this third piece that we, that's called political agency, which is kind of the bridge. We see that as the bridge between um, um, analysis and action. And political agency is sort of like, a, it, it's basically like efficacy, right? It's, this, it's the feeling that you can make a change, right, if you wanted to, right? And so um, there were actually different scales that. that were, some that were looking at analysis skills, you know, like, so, so um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to remember the exact types of questions, but these are going to be questions that are really going to be asking about students' ability um, or sense of understanding how different, you know, systemic forms of oppression work, right? We'd have questions around action. We'd have some surveys that were on action that were really asking students, you know, senses of, you know, um, what they could do or uh, what they have done, right, to be able to, to push back against these systems. And then the questions and then the surveys around political agency were really focused on their belief in their own capabilities around doing um, any of the work that would involve transforming um, these systems. And so we collected data that showed and, you know, I don't think it's, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, giving away too much by saying that, yes, in all of these schools, you know, over four years, we saw growth in all of those um, dimensions, which really helped us answer the question, like, was critical consciousness developing? Before I keep moving on real quick, we did see, and I will come back to this, we did see that certain schools, maybe the students showed more growth in one of the components compared to the other. So some of the schools did really show more growth in terms of action versus analysis versus agency. Okay, so that's that piece. The qualitative piece, which is even more fascinating to me, was, you know, the many, 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 many days and hours, full days and hours. I think we spent over 360 days, full days in, in different schools. Um, Unbelievable. Doing full day observations, um, you know, and then doing periodic interviews with students and, and students in particular, and also some teachers as well, um, to really connect the dots. And this gets to your original question about how much the schools were influencing their their um, critical consciousness so we had we were asking we were trying to do both observations and ask specific questions that really linked um you know the growth that we the growth that we were seeing in the students to specific practices that we were seeing in the schools and we felt most comfortable about that when we identified practices that we saw ourselves through our observations when that when those matched up with the ways the students themselves identified um, those practices as influencing their ability to either do the analysis or the action or gain some sense of agency. Um, so, so that so that that was the data. The data was really trying to both con is to both see was there any growth, and so we could say yes to that. And then the qualitative piece was really trying to figure out well how what how if at all can we um, attribute what was going on in the schools. Um, to that growth. And if you want, I can talk a little bit about the things that we saw or the things that the students identified that I contributed to that. I yeah. love that. And for our listeners, uh, I'll summarize a few things here that, you know, you saw that many factors that influenced uh, uh, positive youth uh, outcomes. And 
what you saw was greater resilience, better mental health, higher self-esteem, and of course, higher academic achievement, which probably would be the only interest uh, factor of interest might be for educators. I'm not, I'm, I'm right. teasing here, but, no, no, that's, that's, but, but I think this real. is what we want. We want children to be resilient. So, uh, so tell us, maybe you can walk us through a couple of schools, what they were doing. Uh, you have such incredible stories that you talk about. Uh, including, you know, the countries that banned, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, visiting the neighborhoods. Uh, such interesting stories. Yeah, no. So let me talk about it. Do you want to share a few? Yeah, sure. And, yeah, and yeah. I think I'll, I'll probably, I'll share, probably, I'll try and share three, the one that kind of speaks to each component, right? And I'll, and I'll make it quick, I promise. Um, so one, you know, one of the, some of the schools did really well with, you know, their students did really well with the social analysis piece of, um, critical consciousness. And then though and in those schools and in the, you know those schools what we found is that they often built in they, you know into their core curriculum, right? Whether it was within sort of the traditional classes like English or social studies or other things or or, or creating their own class that all students took that really um um introduce them to, you know, frameworks for understanding how these systems work, right? And so one of the schools that we uh, highlighted, they uh, introduced these students to what they called the three I's, um, the three, and by I, I mean the letter I, three I's yes, framework, yes. <laughs> which was a way, which was a way of categorizing the di- different ways that, for example, racism can manifest. And in, in that regard, it was, you know, it can happen on an interpersonal level, right, between people. It can happen on an internalized level, which we've been talking about already, the ways in which we absorb, you know, these messages around Racial race. attitude. Right, exactly. And then it can, happen, it can happen on an institutional level, right, which happens through policies and structures. And so in this class, the social engagement class that all, I think in this case, all ninth graders took, right, they learned about this framework and got a chance to play around with it. And then what we saw is that because you know, all the ninth graders were taking this. We saw throughout the year, both throughout ninth grade and beyond, the way that other core classes would then use that framework in their own classes. And so one of the examples we highlight in the book is how the English, I think the ninth grade English class was utilizing Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, right, a book, a, t- a text that they probably teach anyway, as a way to help them understand notions of internalized racism and internalized standards of beauty, right? So, those the schools who did that really gave students a lot of important tools for analysis. For action, um, we, what we saw is a similar kind of model, but in this case, we saw models where, you know, uh, in one of the schools, students in the 12th grade took a, this is a class that all 12th graders had to take, okay? So again, the incorporation into the, you know, the everyday schooling of the students, where they learned actually different um, theories and methods of organizing. Okay, and then after taking this class in the first in their first semester, they had a a a, a senior year graduating culminating project that that you know required them to choose a topic of importance to them in their community, do the research, and then and then produce and 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 uh, and perform what they call this a change the world project, where they had to take you know the learnings that they had done about the specific topic, move it out into the world and do some kind of action. And whether that action was in the form of, you know, confronting institutions that were doing things that were discriminatory, whether that was just, um, you know, doing a public service announcement so folks in their community, you know, could understand what's going on. 
um, the example that you gave was of, uh, that you mentioned was of students for whom the, the French consulate had actually I declared their their neighborhood, the neighborhood that they go to school in and that they live in as essentially a no-go zone for French citizens. If you're going to come to travel to this city, don't come to this neighborhood because it's scary. The school found out about it. The students found out about it. They did um, a lot of research and they ended up confronting, you know, the general consul in that city <laughs> to urge them to change that, essentially a travel ban, right, to their community, uh, which they eventually did, which was amazing, right? Um, and so in those in those cases, the schools built build in the action part of in, build, doing the action out in the world as part of the as, a, as part of the learning, as part of the core learning. The last thing I'll mention is schools where we saw, you know, students uh, displaying high um, agency, right? The feeling that they can do it, uh, make changes is that, you know, th- these were schools that pr- that that provided um, meaningful, again, usually through, you know, core courses, meaningful opportunities for the young folks to be, to shape the school environment, right? And so we, we talk mm. about an example where schools, where, where one of the schools through an 11th grade civics class gave the students an opportunity to revise an unfair school policy. And, this, and these students, in this case, you know, decided to, to try and make a revision to the, the school technology policy, right? The, the ability for them to be able to use their phones or other tablets, right? To be able to do, you know, work and, and and other things, and so the school, the students went through this whole process of again, you know, research, making a whole presentation to the faculty. They presented <laughs> to the faculty. Love that. The faculty did they give them what they wanted immediately? No, they actually scaffolded a process for them and said, "Hey, wait, we have some real questions about this." Right, pushed back a little bit in ways that were both um, genuine and some also about scaffolding a process for them to understand like how this works in real life. Um, and then at the end of that process, you'd get students saying things like the, like the textbook definition of agency. They would say things like, wow, I didn't know schools would listen to young students. Right. And now that I make, now that I made a change here, I feel like I can make a change anywhere. Right. Um, and so those are the kinds of different, uh, practices that we saw. Um, and we feel comfortable attributing the pra- those practices to the results that we saw because we all it was also backed up by the many interviews we did with students over the you know over the years where the students would say that you know I learned about you know I I, I became more aware about food deserts you know in my you know in my community um, and it was my social engagement class that really helped me see this in ways that I hadn't seen before so we had lots of amazing um, data for, on the qualitative end. Um, where we got to see for ourselves the ways that the schools were scaffolding these processes. And then amazingly, um, students organically telling us the ways in which those processes impacted um, their thinking. I mean, there's so many examples made my heart just dance and eyes teared up sometimes. But there was one example of Terrence who said achievement as resistance. That was such a uh, that as achievement as resistance was such a powerful way to keep at school, recognize that there are a lot of forces who would are banking on me dropping out, or they don't care if I don't finish, but if I care, I have some agency. And I mean, that's just the most beautiful thing. And, you know, it's really interesting. So my real question is, why is this not happening everywhere? Why is critical consciousness curriculum is not all pervasive, right? Right. I think. Well, that that that's that's a tough question. I and I think the answer, sadly, 
um, is politics. <laughs> and so what do I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much research, you know, even beyond the research that Scott and I did that shows, and like you said earlier, like even if you're just only interested in, you know, you know, high test scores or, you know, high, you know, achieve, you know, academic achievement. We have the data that shows that critical consciousness and positive racial identity is very much, you know, statistically like, you know, uh, correlated with um, outcomes like GPA or test scores or, or whatever it is that you're interested in. And so in those, in the, under those circumstances, you, it begs the question even more. So like, well, why isn't everybody doing this? Especially <laughs> right in the context where, you know, fan, you know, all these researchers and policymakers are trying to figure out, especially for students of color, like, well, how can we, you know, make sure that we can, you know, that we're not seeing these disparate outcomes. Right. And so why, again, why would we not be doing this across the board? I think the reality is, is that, um, the no, you know, uh, Paulo Freire said that, you know, in his, in his work that we, we read the word in order to read the world, right? In other words, that we learn mm. um, these, these, you know, functional literacies and numeracies, not just for their own sake, right? But so that, that, that we can, it can eventually become critical literacies and transformative literacies, right? And to me, that does not sound like a really radical notion, right? That we are, that we are teaching students skills so that they can become authentic authors of their own future. That does not sound radical to me. It becomes, it, it, it becomes radicalized, unfortunately, um, in, the, in the context of students who have been minoritized on the basis of race and other things, right? Because what what, in order for them to become right, authentic authors of their own future, they're gonna have to, we're going to have to surface you know, ugly dynamics like racism, like patriarchy, right? Like ableism, right? Um, and sort of looping back Nepotism. to the beginning, right, right. So looping back to the beginning parts of our conversation, there's ways in which when those systems are invisible and aren't talked about, that, that that's kind of our, that's, that's, that's sort of a goal, right? That, that's sort of the ideal in the United States is that we, we shouldn't be encumbered by these systems, right? But, you know, sadly, because, you know, di- you know, different parts of the society are in different places around their sense of whether we should be foregrounding those issues, thinking about those issues at all, right? Now that, now that we're talking about racism or ableism or, you know, these other isms, that now makes it to those people seem like a radicalized project, right? And now, and, and maybe even, um, you know, a, a form of indoctrination. And so I think my response to that is as follows. And again, this sort of takes on, uh, you know, the kind of, um, uh, ways that Freire looks at education, that education is inherently political. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to like distinguish between political and partisan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Part, you know, education being partisan that <clears throat> I can understand, especially in the U S context, how that would not be an outcome that we're looking for. Right. That does more lean into the, the realm of, of indoctrination, but I don't under, I don't know what education I don't know what an apolitical education is. Like, I don't even know what that means, right? We make everybody <laughs> yeah. go to school in the United States, right? And a big reason for that is so that they can, and, 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 and a laudable reason for that, right? Is so that, you know, folks can be, you know, useful and educated contributing members of our democracy, right? One of the biggest, you know, <laughs> reasons that people were scared of democracy when it was first brought up was like, these people don't know nothing. Like, these people can't, how are people going to make decisions about how to be governed if they don't know nothing, right? And so we, yeah. 
we solve that problem by, I don't know, sending, making people go to school. And so schooling in that, just in that level alone, right, is inherently political. And so in this regard, if we're, you know, so yeah, so in this regard, yes, when we're doing critical consciousness, it, you know, the political realm, you know, of education comes right into the, into the front and center, because the whole notion is, is that, you know, what does it mean to be, to have a vibrant democracy if folks can't participate in that democracy or are not allowed to participate in that democracy one way or another. And so I think what it really involves is helping people understand that while, yes, we are, you know, helping young folks think about some of these issues like racism, um, that that doesn't mean we're trying to indoctrinate them into a certain way of thinking. And I think the real concern is that a lot of this work that foregrounds you know, race or racism brought by some folks is that we are teaching young folks to hate, hate America or to, or to hate white people, right? Which is just so far <laughs> from the truth. Like we are just trying to talk about, and by the way, critical consciousness is for everybody, right? We're all participating in these, these systems of oppression that we all need to figure out how we're doing, what we're, how we're recognizing and what we're doing about it. And either in terms of reinforcing it or, repro- or, or trying to to dismantle it. But the point is, is that this is the kind of work we need to do in the face of the reality of these systems to help young folks see themselves in a way that isn't through the deficit lens. And to, and to your point, Sucheta, is to give them a sense of agency to be able to do something about it. So there's lots of platitudes about how, you know, America is going to become a better place because our young, the children are the future and our young folks are going to, are going to make the changes that we can't, but that doesn't happen magically, Right. And that definitely doesn't happen if no. you're if you're a, if you're um, a child who doesn't have any sense of agency over their own future or doesn't have a sense of identity that says you know you can and should be making positive changes for yourself and the larger community. So that's what this work is about. Um, and I think if we did that in a way that was part of the mainstream, you know, no one would push against that. No one would say, "Wait, wait, why are you trying to help students become authors of their own future?" But when it become when that process foregrounds some of these other systems that are more taboo and that are harder for people to to want to reckon around, then people get nervous about whether or how this work should be done. You know that this is so well said, and you're kind of um, kind of mirroring the the concepts that you know Paulo Ferry talks about in Pedagogy of Oppressed. There's a portion there that he talks about fear of freedom. You know, freedom would require the, them to eject this image and replace it with autonomy and responsibility. Freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift. It must be pursued constantly and responsibly. Freedom is not an ideal located outside of man, nor is it an idea which becomes myth. It is rather the indispensable condition for the quest for human completion. I just love that. So I think I'm, I'm wondering, as we talk about the oppressed, what do we talk about? What? How do we address the critical consciousness of those who are not intentionally oppressing, but they are part of the system that's benefiting them, and they may feel incredibly uncomfortable if certain parts are pointed out about the privilege that comes their way? And this is where I feel there's such a rub. Um, how do you uh, see this apply uh, to all children? Yeah, and adults. Is, yeah, this is important, right? So, 
in terms, so look, the way these the way these systems of oppression uh, they've been going since before we got here, and they're going to probably be going since after we're gone. And so I think part of the deal is to help folks understand that because these are systems that churn and they go, um, whether we like it or not, that it's you know I think there's a there's a there's a sense that like all these systems are just going to peter out. Like you know the old people are going to go away. And you know, pass on, and then the new people will come in, and then that'll usher the era, you know, a new era. And that's just so not the case. That's just not what history dictates, right? All you have to do is look at the, you know, the, you know, what happened in Charlottesville. What was it like four or five years ago? Those were not old people walking around with torches on that campus. That was those were young folks, right? So that's one. Two, like these systems of oppression, like to, based on what you were your, your quote from Freire, they're upheld by people who have power and by people who don't. Right. They're upheld by both groups. Right. And so there's no way that we're going to dismantle these systems without the folks who have the privilege engaging in this work. And I think U.S. history dictates this. Right. There are ways in which, you know, you know, when we've made big leaps forward in terms of social justice, it's often occurred when, you know, folks with privilege have decided to get on board this process and become part of the process that usually, leap, you know, makes helps us make big steps forward. So. So this work needs to be done with, you know, for example, if we're talking about racism, it definitely needs to be done with white folks, for example. If we're talking about patriarchy, it definitely needs to be done with men, okay? And so what is the way that we can help folks do this, folks with privilege do this without feeling, you know, overwhelmed by, like, guilt or shame or whatever kind of negative emotions that might, you know, make them not want to be part of this process? What, we, what needs to be done is to help them understand that, like, this is not, you know, it, you should not feel shame, guilt around having privilege, right? Because like I was saying before, we're born into these systems. Like nobody asks to be, nobody asks to have unearned privilege, right? And so I, I reject approaches that either try to just shame, that try and shame people for just having privilege, right? I think that's a problem. And I reject approach and I, and I reject notions where people feel like, oh, I have privilege Therefore, I just need to like, you know, be quiet, um, shut up, you know, wallow in my guilt because that's also not going to be helpful. Like, it, it's, it's not helpful for, you know, there, there's, it's not going to help dismantle any of these systems of oppression to have the folks with privilege just sitting there wallowing in guilt and shame about it. No, we need people to, and it's going to require action. And so, in that regard, I think we need to help reorient folks who have privilege. To think, to feel less shame and guilt about whether they have privilege or not, and more guilt and shame around how are they utilizing their privilege or not, right? So if you want to feel I a sense that. of like, you want to feel a sense of like, you know, guilt or or whatever to help, you know, push you forward, it should be around what are you doing about the privilege that you have, right? That's the thing that should move us forward, and that, and and we all need to think about that because, like I said again, e- even when we all Let's say we all decided, you know, locked arms together, agreed that like these systems of repression are bad and we want to get rid of them. It's, you know, it's going to take so much work, even when we all agree, right, to make them go away because they're so powerful and so pervasive. I mean, we had a constitution that gave everyone the, you know, the right to vote and then we needed to have, matter. you know, amendments to make that actually happen. Then we had to have more, you know, civil rights acts, you know, after that to really make it happen. And we're still dealing with it, right? And so it's always going to take 
tons and again building on your Ferre quotation it, it's a it's a process it's not a destination it's always going to require us to do work so we need people's energies focused on getting involved in that work whether it's work they need to be doing themselves and or work they need to be doing collectively um from their different levels of power and privilege and and to realize that like look you might have power and privilege great you didn't ask for that but now you got to now what are you going to do about it right so so I think that's I think that's the key to this issue. I think too often we have either approaches that are misguided or, or approaches that are misinterpreted that really frame the issue as like, oh, you have privilege, therefore there's nothing you can do, right? Like you just have it. All you can do is just go away, right? Or just not be who you are, and that's just not useful. Um, so we we, we want to give folks with privilege, guess what, a sense of agency around this. There's something you can do about this. Absolutely. Right? And, you know, I love, I'll end this, um, uh, that, you know, one of the beautiful things you you say in your book is that uh, critical consciousness, consciousness is, the, is an antidote uh, for oppression. And this is how, you just explained how this is possible. Um, and, and the other very positive message you, you leave us that you see measurable, as you said, objective, subjective, and transformative changes in youth, uh, uh, which is what we want. And I just can imagine the power of if we have such kind of army of new generation who pauses and problem-posing pedagogy that, you know, uh, Freire talks about, uh, which is really like taking contemplation into saying, um, being serious about uh, problems that we see and not just turning the other you know, turning your back and saying, oh my God, I'm feeling overwhelmed. So as we end, um, do you have any suggestions for our listeners? Uh, what books tend, uh, you tend to look at that you find inspiring and that influence your thoughts? Yes. Um, let, me say, let me say one other thing right before that, if that's okay. I think oh, yes, please. We, we, you know, we're also long overdue for a, a revisioning of what schooling needs to be. Right in this country, yes. right? We uh, the way I describe it is we have we have like a a nineteenth century school schedule that are prepa- that's preparing students for twentieth century jobs, right? So we we are way overdue of trying to figure out what school needs to be, and I think this you know the the the, the pandemic moment that we've had, right, that really forced us it has really jump started a process of re envisioning schools, uh, what school needs to be, and I think that. Critical consciousness needs to, you know, needs to be a part of that. Needs to be a part of that re envisioning. So let me just so let and me, executive function training. Exactly. Teach children how to think for themselves and manage their lives with intention. A hundred percent. Thank you for saying that. In terms of books that I think you, you know, that you could read more about, I would start with Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, um, which really helps you Love orient, it. you know, orient yourself to the the political nature of of, of education. And the kinds of um, um, authority you need to have with students, right? And in a Freirean model, it's way more of a reciprocal model of teaching and learning between students and teachers than a vertical, than a more of a, a vertical authority model where the teacher has all the information, all the expertise, and is just depositing it in to the student's head. That's not what we're trying to do. We need to see our young folks as having expertise in, our, in those communities as, ha- as being experts on their own condition and drawing from that. Um, so that's one book that I would mention. Another book that I would mention is Below the Surface um, by two uh, great scholars, one at, um, De- uh, Deborah Rivas Drake and, um, and Adriana Umanya Taylor at Harvard Graduate School of Education, who've done amazing research. And it's a very readable, uh, readable book 
about racial and ethnic identity, right? And so if you're really interested in That's great. thinking about what racial and ethnic identity is and how to promote positive racial and ethnic identity, I would, I would, I would uh, suggest that book. And the last book I would, I would suggest um, is Cultivating Genius by Dr. Goldie Muhammad, which I think is just a beautiful um, example of, you know, through um, especially like literacy curriculum and otherwise, how we can be meaningfully integrate um, some of the co key components of critical consciousness, especially around, you know, identity, especially around analysis into our everyday um, lessons. And so I, I would highly recommend that book as a way, as a way of, as one type of example of how we could be meaningfully incorporating um, critical consciousness type work in, into our schools. Well, my goodness. So I have to admit, I have not uh, read the other two, uh, Paolo Freire's book. Because of your and Scott's work, I got introduced to it last year. So I can't wait to read these two books. I'm wondering, curious, if you are familiar with Baba Amberker, uh, Annihilation of Caste, uh, um, he, um, I will send you, um, some information about it, but he is, um, uh, from India. He is, um, a he was a champion of, uh, um, speaking against oppression and creating the critical consciousness and, uh, changing the voice and giving agency. And his work had great influence on MLK. Um, and they had, they were in correspondence with each other, which, uh, I recently found out, but very interesting. Well, that's all for us now. Thank you for tuning in and, uh, joining this deep and meaningful conversation. If you are enjoying our podcast and love what you're listening to, please share, uh, and like us on many social media and spread the word, uh, because this is important work. And, um, to me, you know, executive function skills, is changing the way you look at the world, become more aware so that you understand the, 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 the changes you make benefit not just you but others. And lastly, there's so much, um, so much work to be done uh, in the community where you belong and the larger community that you don't see, but that change is not possible unless we pause, reflect, and then respond and not react. So if you don't practice critical consciousness, you will be in the mode of reacting and that's not good for anybody, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, Darren, for being with us and, and being absolutely an incredible guest. Uh, I am so grateful. Thank absolutely you. My, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive function. To contact your host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive function, visit her website at exqinfinitenowhow.com. That's www.exqinfinitenowhow.com. Tune in next week for another informative episode of Full Prefrontal, hosted by the founder of EXQ, Sucheta Kamath.